0: This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Hello and welcome to The Letter from the Bureau, a special series which is part of the Straits Times Asian Insider podcast channel. I'm your host, ST's foreign editor, Hagyashree Gareka. Now, The Letter from the Bureau is meant to be a detour, a scenic detour from the raging news of the day. We like to talk about life as it goes on amid all the crises around us. I chat each month with one of ST's 30-odd correspondents in 15 cities across the Asia Pacific, the United States, and Europe, and they share with you interesting trends and events unfolding in their countries. In our 10th episode, we are speaking with ST's Australia correspondent, Jonathan Perlman in Sydney. It's good to have you on the show, Jonathan.
1: Hi, Buggy. Thanks so much. Great to be here.
0: So... How is Sydney doing? Is it beginning to wake up now after this, you know, nearly two-year-long slumber that it's been in uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic?
1: Yes. Thankfully, it is starting to wake up. It's been a sort of fitful wake up. There have been a lot of stops and starts. You know, the big restart was really supposed to to, to be at the end of last year. Um, and then the Omicron wave came on. And uh, suddenly things slowed down again. But now Sydney is returning to normal um, and you know international travel is fully back on. Tourists and, and um, workers and uh, visitors are welcome from everywhere. The restrictions are continually being eased and there really aren't too many of them left. So it's great to see Sydney bouncing back. But the Omicron outbreak is, is still on it's very much with us. Schools, for instance, are continually closing. It's really rife amongst children and the unvaccinated. So the health aspects have been okay and life is returning to normal, but it's, you know, it's certainly, we're still in a, in the middle of a pandemic.
0: So that's good to hear. And I'm sure, uh, you know, a big source of relief for everyone, despite, you know, mm. the caveat surrounding the Omicron, uh, which we have here in Singapore as well, by the way. So, Yep. Yeah. Uh, now, in your recent article for the Straits Times, Jonathan, you wrote about a new attraction that's opened up in Sydney and, uh, you know, just as conveniently as Australia begins welcoming visitors again. So tell us a bit about it.
1: Yeah, so I wanted to write about this new walk that's opened up mm-hmm. um, that goes from two of Sydney's um, and really Australia's most famous beaches from bondi beach to manly beach Um, obviously you can you can do the walk in either direction and it ends up being about 80 kilometers but the aim of the walk is to hug the coastline Mm -hmm. and really lead you along the harbour foreshore all the way all the way really around uh, around virtually almost all the way around the harbour now You know, Sydney's harbour is is famous and it's really the sort of kind of visual heart of the city. But for years, it's only, you know, there have been lots of walks scattered around the harbour and they're spectacular. But often only locals know about these walks and, um, you know, you sort of do a short walk in a nice harbourside suburb and then you finish the walk and and you go home or go back to your hotel. And what this has done is connect all those various walks so that you can do the entire walk you can do bits of it you can do it in days but it's really um it's really an incredible way to see diverse parts of the city but also see some of the most beautiful parts of the city which tend to be crowded around uh that you know which tend to be around the harbour
0: that sounds really attractive jonathan are you a local yourself
1: I am a local. Um, I am. So lots of these little walks were familiar to me. Uh Um, Not all of them, but I am local. And, you know, walking around the harbour and walking around the waterside parts of Sydney is, you know, it's one of the great uh, joys of living in Sydney.
0: But this is 80 kilometres, right? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) you know, so, I mean, have you done it yourself?
1: So I have not done the 80 kilometers in in one go they recommend you can do it over several weekends Mm. due to the pandemic um it's been difficult to do that because because there were lots of restrictions in place throughout the pandemic but i have done all of the walk in its various stages and it's like the route that they have set up for this walk and there's a great app which you, which sort of allows you to follow the route is is it really ensures that you see all these little sort of hidden beaches and coves along the way you see the history of Sydney you see all the forts and gun placements that were set up in the 19th century you see and then and then you go through the heart of the city as well I mean you see that you see the sort of modern parts of the city so I I have done it I have done it in bits and pieces I've not done it as as a whole um I would certainly like to
0: yeah I mean I consider myself as something of a walker so I'm surely tempted uh, going by the way you're describing it and actually in <laughs> your in your piece you you quoted a former defense minister if i remember correctly yeah. and you said he he called it a must do for walkers everywhere in the world uh, you know i was just wondering is is he just being patriotic and you know doing his bit to uphold australian tourism
1: I don't think he is. I think he he and and another Labor staffer who used to work for for Kevin Rudd um, were really instrumental in creating this walk. Um, and both of them, I mean, I used to know them when I was in Canberra and when when Rudd was in office. Mm. Going um, going back to those days, and you know that they were central to to the Rudd government, and they were working very very hard and when they were in Sydney, they used to go for these nighttime strolls around the harbour and and I think realised that there was a the potential to do something, to transform this into, you know, kind of a major part of mm. the city and really to share it, you know, with with other people in Sydney, other people across Australia and around the world who wouldn't necessarily be aware or, or sort of have access to these different walks. I mean, as I said, like lots of them were just known to locals and little kind of little pockets and suburbs Mm -hmm. of sydney the locals would know the little paths that would take you down to the harbour and so this was a way of sharing that so no i don't think that that former Mm -hmm. defense minister um putting in obviously the 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 caveats we need to about um about politicians but Mm -hmm. i don't think he was overstating the case
0: right and so you mentioned that kevin rudd had a uh, sort of part formulating it too, so maybe it's on his list of recommendations. I'm guessing
1: it was his staffer. It was his, his one of staffer. his, his okay. one of his advisors. Yeah.
0: Okay. So now you say that some of it, you know, some of this walk goes around places which are connected to the past, to Australia's deep Aboriginal past, as well as, uh, you know, yeah. the more recent, yeah, uh, perhaps the colonial or war era past. And then you say that it goes past uh, Australia's most expensive home. And that's nearly 100 billion dollars, yeah.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: And it goes past the, uh, you know, the home of the official residence of the prime minister.
1: That's right. And and in in Kirribilli, it goes past the official residence of the prime minister, the official residence in Sydney of the governor general, and it goes past. I'll just note the home of a former prime minister, Malcolm Turnbull, who's one of the wealthiest prime ministers. That Australia's ever had, and lives mm. in a in a in a lovely um, harborside home.
0: Okay, so interesting. So I imagine, when if especially at this time, if workers are you know doing their stroll past these landmarks, uh, there's pretty good reason to discuss at least a couple of things which are so much in the news. So naturally, I'm talking about Australia's property prices. Do they have a bottom? And then <laughs> uh, you know the impending election. What, what's what's the latest on both these fronts, Jonathan?
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's true. And I mean, as we've discussed, I mean, this walk not only gives you an insight into the sort of history of Sydney, but also into the present. And, and a big part of of the, the kind of present scene in terms of Australia's economy and politics is its housing because of the spectacular boom that has gone on for years in Australia, mm-hmm. off the back of low interest rates, but also off the back of Australia's incredibly strong economy. You know, if, it, if it, we had a brief mm. recession during the pandemic but, but before that we had the longest run of anywhere in the world almost 30 years of mm. continuous growth um and it's just amazing and, it is, and, and and you see it on this walk i mean you see these spectacular houses and they are worth a, you know a fortune um point piper this little kind of suburb that juts out into the harbour you walk along there and that area has a median House price of over ten million dollars. The average house price there is over ten million dollars. Um, it's it's that's wow. you know that's remarkable um, property, but it is uh, it's 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 booming and it's still been booming. And interest rates are at record lows, and the government um, or at least the the central bank has so far not really intervened. Um, you know the strong property prices cause. High consumer sentiment that keeps people spending, and it's it's kind of it's a hard thing for the economy to find an, an off ramp from it. In terms of the in terms of the politics, we are about to enter an election campaign. Scott Morrison, the prime minister, is due to call it as as we talk, due to call it any day. And property prices will be will be a part of that election, but but other issues are going to be obviously handling the pandemic and the rising inflation is is, is probably the biggest issue here right now, um, as in around as it is around the world. Um, petrol prices are at record highs Mm. food prices are growing quickly and so you know the election's really going to revolve around that
0: right and and how the governments handle covid too i guess so these kinds of issues yeah everywhere around the world this podcast is available on our audio app that's a w-e-d-i-o like us and rate us and now back to our podcast episode what do you think are The Prime Minister
1: Scott Morrison's chances. You know, the the obvious indicator to use is the opinion polls, and they do not Mm -hmm. look good for Scott Morrison at the moment. The coalition, his his ruling coalition, trails the Labor opposition party by about forty-five to fifty-five percent, and that has been fairly consistent for a long time now. So Mm -hmm. that trend is 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 not a blip; it's set in. Um, I think more worryingly for Scott Morrison, his own personal approval ratings have gone down a lot and, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes a Prime Minister's popularity can help rescue a struggling party at elections Mm. and Morrison is not going to have that advantage at this election. I mean, him and the Labor leader, Anthony Albanese, are now equal footing in terms of preferred Prime Minister. That's a really worrying sign for Scott Morrison, mm. I'd say three things that can that that could still save him at this point. The first is mm-hmm. um, Australia has just released a budget, pre-election budget, and that could help him in the polls. He's done a lot to try to help people with their cost of living expenses. Secondly, is the election ca- campaign itself. Morrison showed in the last election campaign that. He's a, he's a strong campaigner and he's going to you know he, he's going to try to paint Anthony Albanese as as a risk um, and really um, kind of try to mount mm. some sort of fear campaign around the Labor leader. Um, but he was able to do that successfully mm-hmm. at the last election, and so he may maybe able yeah. to do that again. And the third the third issue is coming. I mean, coming back to property prices, I think that's. An important part of the way Australians probably feel right now about the economy. I mean, people who own a house have seen their their you know their, their main asset skyrocket in price and value, and um, you know may mm-hmm. think that a switch of government might imperil that. So that's another thing that I think counts in Morrison's favour.
0: Right, so so despite that big gap in the polls, then he could kind of come from behind as he did. He in could the last exactly election, that's exactly right.
1: right. He came from behind in the last election. Mm-hmm. He's certainly the mm-hmm. underdog going into this election, and um and and I I personally think there are important differences with the last election. You know, when when Labour at that point were really offering big bold policies, a really kind of nation-changing agenda. Well, they haven't done that this time. Mm -hmm. You know, so they've gone for very small targets. They're really just copying and, and sort of nodding their heads every time Scott Morrison speaks. That's making it very hard for Morrison to kind of paint them as a risk or run scare campaigns because there's not much to point to. I mean, most of the major policies that the government's adopted in this term Um, have been endorsed by labor so it's going to make things more difficult for morrison in this campaign
0: so i believe that should extend to you know the government's policy on relations with china which have been rocky but uh, i believe there's like a public consensus around the way uh, morrison government's carried itself and the other one would be the war the war in ukraine
1: Yeah, there is consensus on China policy here. I mean, Morrison and the coalition have tried to paint Labor as soft on China. Um, It hasn't really worked. And in in fact, it led to this incredible backlash, including, Mm. you know, Australia, the head of Australia's spy agency, who doesn't usually kind of come out of the shadows very much. Um, But even he's raised Mm. concerns about um, politicizing national security. So that didn't, Really work. I mean, Labor have been fairly strong on national security and and, and, and on China policy. They've attacked some of Morrison's mm-hmm. style, and I think you will see a slight change of approach if Labor gets in. But yeah, I mean, as I say, there's a there's a public consensus. I mean, polls show that Australians in recent years have sort of um, their views of China have changed. They view China as a threat and not just as a sort of great economic partner and those public views are kind of feeding into the political rhetoric that we're hearing from Canberra.
0: Right and back to the more wholesome (laughs) topic of tourism (laughs) I'm just wondering so the economy is all good despite two years of COVID, Hmm. at least in in, in the broad broad way. But what about the tourism industry in particular? Obviously, when Australia shut itself off completely during COVID-19, that must have been tough. But now are you seeing, you know, revival already?
1: It's been slow, the revival. The tourism industry has suffered enormously here we had not just international border closures, but state border closures, which were just mm-hmm. unprecedented. I mean, no one really paid much attention to state borders here until the pandemic. Suddenly they were mm-hmm. shut. So it's really made it very tough for, t- for tourism businesses. They are saying that they have not yet sort of started to see the true turnaround. I think international visitors are trickling back and the hope is that they will flood back. But you know, that's yet to happen. Um, and in the budget that just came down, there was a big boost, including for international marketing. So expect to see some some ads in Singapore um, because Australia is very keen mm. for for tourists from overseas to come back.
0: Right. I think I see them all the time in, uh, on <laughs> Facebook and, you know.
1: Yeah. 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 You'll probably see some more.
0: <laughs> okay. So what else is new and good in Sydney, Jonathan? So, you know, it's it's a big favorite. The city is a big favorite with people from our part of the world, whether it's Singapore or I think rest of Asia. So the next time that they come in, what can they expect to see that's new and what might be your personal recommendation, uh, you know, for something to do and see in your city?
1: Yeah, sure. So in terms of new, I mean, I'd say the main thing that people may not have seen or seen all of is, is the Barangaroo development. Um, which is this massive uh, kind of patch of land right in the heart of city. Again, it's on, it's on the harbour foreshore and the walk, um, the, the, the walk that we've been discussing will take you through it. But it is this, this amazing area um, which has been developed into sort of a parkland but also a cultural precinct. There's public art there. There are some of Sydney's best restaurants now are down there there's a new hotel, and it's just it's just a new kind of fresh part of the city that I think has been done really well. Uh, and so, in terms of a personal recommendation, um, and something that is is probably a little bit uh, less known, visitors to Sydney may be familiar with Palm Beach, which is a beach in the north of Sydney. Um, really beautiful, beautiful headland, um, which is worth visiting and is on the tourist map, but. Less well-known, there's a little ferry service that runs from Palm Beach. And I feel feel bad recommending this because I (laughs) hope not too many people uh, discover it. But um, (laughs) there's a ferry ferry service. From there takes you to a number of tiny little beaches that you can really only reach by ferry. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're completely inaccessible. Some of them have a residential and there are sort of little little kind of townlets down the, uh, around them but one of them one of these stops is called the basin where you can stop and have a picnic um if you like you can even camp there and it's just it's just a really magical thing to do for i mean this is not just for tourists this is for anyone in, mm. in sydney or in australia but it's 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 not as well known and um and i think it's a great way to sort of to experience both this sort of water of sydney and then also the beaches and just see see a different part of the city that's not, you know, that's not in the immediate vicinity of the city centre.
0: That sounds great, Jonathan. And thank you for sharing. (laughs)
1: Thanks.
0: (laughs) And with that, that's a wrap for Letter from the Bureau. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to read Jonathan's column, we have a link for you in our podcast description box. And there you'll also find a link to the other stories that have appeared in our Letter from the Bureau series. The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us.